All right, so let's uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Hopefully what I have to share tonight will be of interest. Just going to read the Christmas story and then concentrate on one thing and kind of get off on some rabbit trails, I'll tell you right now, so. Luke chapter 2, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Air Force One, not the real one, but the movie with Harrison Ford. Great movie. I love that movie. At the very end, the Situation Room back in D.C. is on pins and needles because they don't know if the president has made it out of Air Force One in this impossible rescue where he's on a zip line over to this other cargo aircraft. Uh, And and, uh, so they're all waiting and wondering what's going on. And after the appropriate pause and the dramatic music, the crew of that cargo ship announces, we are now Air Force One. Everybody goes crazy. I start crying every time. There's just something super patriotic about it, you know. But what's interesting is that um, whatever airplane the president is on is Air Force One, right? I mean, that's what I get out of that. Uh, And and so I want to focus just on one thing in this birth story, the manger, and let's call it what it was. It was a feeding trough for animals, right? Jesus' presence in the trough made it his throne and his temple. Because wherever Jesus is, he's enthroned, and wherever he is, uh, he is the fulfillment of the temple. His throne, the child born to Joseph and Mary was the promised son of David, the shepherd king who was and is Lord and who will rule forever and ever. Thus, his trough was really his throne, and it was a good reminder that his rule would be like that of a shepherd caring for his sheep. He's a shepherd king. And because of that, he leads us rather than driving us, and he uh, provides our every need. Those are a couple of good things to remember coming into the new year, right? We harp on this a little bit. I hope you don't get, um, you know, to thinking we do it too much. But we, uh, Jesus doesn't drive you like cattle. Okay? We're, we're not cattle to be driven. We're sheep to be led. And there's a, um, one of the pastors, one of the Calvary pap- pastors, he would just go crazy over the title of Rick Warren's book, the... Uh, purpose-driven life. He says, we are not driven. We are led. And, and true, it would have been a better title, the, per, the Spirit-led life, because that's the kind of life we want. So it may seem like a little thing, but it's not, uh, because Jesus ends up getting portrayed poorly. Um, he, he looks like a thug sometimes in some churches, pushing you into things. They're usually good things, praying more, reading more, giving more, uh, giving more, right? No, oops, I just said that twice. But, uh, you know, I mean, some of you have had this experience. Some of you have not had the experience yet, and I pray for you when you do. Um, 
You'll start leaving your wallet in the car at some of these churches. So, sorry, I can't get to my wallet, you know. But, uh, and so we, we don't want to be driven, and we don't want to drive others. We want to lead by grace uh, and, and let the Lord be the one who works in their life. And you know, obviously, we share with others. We read the scripture. We pray and all, but we can't drive people. Uh, and we're not looking for an outward result ever. We're only looking for the inward um, continual change of glory to glory, of seeing in a glass dimly, but moving towards face to face. And so uh, his, uh, his throne, it's his temple because there lying in it was the Savior promised to mankind who would substitute himself for us and die for the sins of the world. He's the Savior of all men. We like to remind people, especially those who believe, he will draw all men to himself uh, and you know, because he was lifted up on the cross. And we want to be those who continue to share the cross of Jesus Christ uh, because it is the, it's the message. And so whenever you get a chance, you want, to talk, you want to use the name Jesus and you want to talk about the cross and the resurrection. Uh, and so uh, you know, we still live in, a, in an area here where I think we can do that you know, a little bit easier than some places. In all the years... I've been praying publicly as a chaplain or whatever. I've only been challenged one time by a sweet, well, formerly sweet old woman. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was at a more police event, and I, I don't know who she was, but she, she was a sweet little lady, and uh, she was coming through the serving line, and, and uh, I was pretending to serve. But anyway, uh, she said, Pastor, do you think it's wise to use Jesus' name when you pray? And I go, I, I think it's necessary, ma'am. <laughs> I don't know about wise, but it sure is. And she, she had an objection to that because uh, not everyone is a Christian. I said, well, I am. And, you know, they asked me to pray. And so, you know, if you would like to pray next time, maybe get on the list. Or I didn't say that because that would have been me. <laughs> I wanted to, but then I realized I would have blown everything out of proportion. But, but yeah, so we're not, we're not in the most terrible place for that, right? Uh, I mean, we, did, we stayed open during COVID, and we're proud and happy that we did. But, we, we, you know, nobody was threatening us either. You know, we didn't really think that Sheriff Robinson was going to come out with the SWAT team and, and take over our building or anything like they were doing in Canada or even at Calvary Chapel of San Jose with all their problems. You know, they still are trying to get uh, like a million dollars out of Calvary San Jose, even though the judge, I don't know all the legalities of it, and so this isn't going to be completely accurate. But basically, they figured out, hey, they didn't really do anything wrong because everybody was stupid during COVID anyway. Uh, and, and, uh, but they said, but you owe us a million bucks for, in fines for you know, the, the time that you were doing what you weren't supposed to or were supposed to be doing. And so it's crazy. And you know what I like about stuff like that? If you're going to owe something, owe big, right? I mean, if, if the city comes in and they says, you owe a million dollars, well, praise the Lord. We're not anywhere close to that. that you know, so that's going to have to be the Lord. So if we get kicked out of our building, that's the Lord. If the million dollars comes in, the, in an envelope tomorrow, that's the Lord. I mean, I hate it when it's a little thing, don't you? I mean, let's go big because you don't know what these little things, you know, it's, it's like, well, I can't do anything about this. So it's so easy to cast my care upon the Lord. Uh, so, you know, not, Lord, I'm not asking for any more big things, but, you know, uh, if it's going to be that way, let it be big. And so that's his temple. One last visual I like about this. Uh, Jesus began his life as a man wrapped tightly in swaddling cloths. I mean, they would, you know, swaddle you up. And uh, it, it was a cool thing. I tried to do that one time with one of the... It's really a skill, you know. They're not supposed to turn blue, I don't think. But anyway... <laughs> 
Uh, Jesus would later in his life be wrapped in grave cloths. Uh, and so it's a picture, too, of what was coming. So lots of fun things about the manger, uh, you know, maybe just a way of thinking so that you can get into more devotional uh, reading. Uh, of course, he would only be wrapped that way for three days, and then he would rise from the dead, and um, now he's robed in glory. Uh, his glory is being revealed, and uh, he's coming. He's coming for us, and then he's coming uh, to right the world. I want to read to you a part of the nativity that you probably have never heard before. You haven't heard of it because it's not part of what we call the canon of Scripture. Uh, it is non-canonical. I love using big words, right? Act, act like so. So the canon is the measure of it, it's the act. You know, I see. I can't even define canon. I'll have Jake do it in a minute. But uh, canon is like a measure, the accurate. It's everything there is, and we measure things about it. People talk about Star Wars and that, you know, oh, it made canon, you know, and stuff. So it's part of the story. But so you've got the scripture, 66 books, that's the completed scripture. And then there's lots of books that have been written about and around the same time as the scripture throughout those years. Uh, undoubtedly, the most famous of the non canonical books is the book of Enoch. Yeah, almost everybody in Christendom has heard of the, the book of Enoch. One reason is because in Jude, a Bible book, we read, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, these false teachers, also saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, Jude would be criticized in a sermon class uh, for using ungodly too often. Uh, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. Uh, they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But anyway, so almost everybody understands that the book of Enoch is a non-canonical, extra-biblical book that is quoted by uh, at least Jude. And then there are other references to it that, scriptures, or that scholars recognize in different parts. Second Peter uh, has a reference to it uh, and quotes from it and all. Take a guess, how many non-canonical books do you think are referred to in the 66 inspired books that comprise the completed Bible? I'll give you a couple of seconds to formulate a thought. All right, how many say five or less? How many say 10 or less? How many care about this at all? <laughs> but thank you. There are at least 20 uh, non-canonical references in the Hebrew Bible and 13 more in the New Testament. These are books like Enoch that are referred to in one way or the other by the inspired writers of Scripture. Some of you might say, oh, yeah, now I remember Paul mentions a letter to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians, and so he refers to a letter that he wrote that no longer exists. The book of Jasher is mentioned in Joshua 10.13 and 2 Samuel 1.18 and also referenced in 2 Timothy. The book of Gad the seer, sounds like a, a Vegas routine, right? But Gad the seer, also called Gad the seer or the acts of Gad the seer, are referenced in 1 Chronicles 29, 29. And so there are, I was surprised 
that there are so many references to non-canonical books uh, in the scripture. Mennonite scholar David Ewart says that Nestle's, yeah, Nestle's, I was going to say Nestle's, N-E-S-T-L-E-S. Nestle's Greek New Testament lists some 132 New Testament passages that appear to be verbal allusions to non-canonical books. Also in the New Testament, at least four pagan authors are alluded to. Uh, Paul talks about the various philosophers and stuff. So there's a lot of extra-biblical, non-canonical stuff going on around the Bible. Last week, I told you that I've been looking at some first-century writings by the so-called early church fathers. I'm doing it because there's a movement growing in popularity uh, uh, for people to return to what is called historic premillennialism. So we're premillennial. That means Jesus is going to come back before the thousand-year reign. He's going to come back and establish the thousand-year reign. Historic premillennialism is an appeal to what they say the early church fathers believed, and that, number one, that there was a post-tribulation rapture. They'll, they'll go so far as to say there, none of the church fathers nowhere talk about a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, and then they also have a couple of other things, like they're, they're not real big on the distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, but anyway, so this is gaining in momentum, uh, and, and they seem to love the, or the post-tribulation rapture and, and, and uh, chastising pre-tribbers and talking about how it's heresy and false teaching, and it was all invented in the 1800s. Uh, we talked about that a lot last week, uh, but uh, I just wanted to bring up why I'm even thinking about this kind of stuff, because uh, other people are, and they're, you know, you, you think, okay, well, you know, I don't even know what you're talking about because I've never read Irenaeus, but I will, and then we'll get into it. And we'll see what happens. And uh, we saw last week that there are some clear references in the church fathers uh, to a rapture of the church that is premillennial uh, and pre-trib. So, uh, um, and uh, this Irenaeus is one who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John. So those guys, and Irenaeus said, hey, every now and then I talk to John. I mean, just dropping names, you know, and stuff. So, now, the historic premillennials are not correct, but even if they were, it wouldn't make any difference. And, and I mean that sincerely because it says in Daniel 12.4, much prophecy was to be shut up uh, until the end of the ages. And, and Irenaeus says as much, and so we thus would expect new developments in eschatology, right? So if way back when Daniel was told by an angel, hey, I gave you all this tremendous prophecy, the 70-week prophecy, and uh, you can calculate from that when Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem and, you know, as, on the donkey and all. And there's so much there about the end times. He goes, but there's things that you need to just shut up about. And, and they won't be revealed until the last days. And, and so, you know, if somebody says, aha, in the first century they, they did this. Oh, okay. But there's no mention of that. Well, that's what I would expect. Because there's some, you know, what is, what, I don't know what we're talking about, but there's got to be some stuff that's been shut up, right? And, and it's going to come out. So anyway, it's, it's an ongoing thing, but um, I always, you know, I just hate it when people, they pick on Christians and they pick on Christians who don't know as much and they say what you believe is wrong. And you know what? I'm still trying to figure out what they believe. Uh, because if you, keep, you ask them, all they want to do is, to, is tell you you're wrong. When you ask them simple questions, they, they go crazy. I mean, it, maybe it's just on Instagram uh, or X. I can't call it X. But, uh, of course, Twitter was always stupid, too. But anyway, so 
But so anyway, that's where we're at on that. One more observation regarding prophecies of the end times. It's also growing in popularity to identify the Antichrist as a Muslim. That's a, a big thing now among uh, you know certain Bible teachers. I think it's driven by the fact that you know there's so much going on in the world today in the Muslim world, you know, uh, and, and such. Uh, Irenaeus, since they've got me reading these guys, Irenaeus, who I already mentioned, talked to Polycarp, who talked to John, and they all got together every now and then to to talk shop. Uh, Irenaeus is he just casually mentions a couple of times that the Antichrist is going to come from the tribe of Dan. And that's been a kind of a, a teaching that a lot of Protestants have had for years because of internal evidence in the book of the Revelation. Uh, you know, Dan is not mentioned in certain passages and all. But according to, if you were to ask Irenaeus, he would say, oh, yeah, he's coming from the tribe of Dan. I heard that from John. So if you're, listening, if you're, if you're looking at this stuff, now, again, this isn't the Bible. This is just a guy named Irenaeus, like us, only he talked to John. Uh, would you, if, if you had a debate going on, and you had the 21st century historic premillennialist get up and say the Antichrist is going to be Islamic. He's going to be the Mahdi of uh, Islam. And then Irenaeus got up and said, yeah, actually, he's coming from the tribe of Dan. Where would you go? I mean, who would you believe? I think I'd go. So I love that these guys have me reading Irenaeus <laughs> because they're, he's like killing them, and they don't even know it. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's fun stuff. Now... Let me get back to what I was going to do and got off track. Again, these extra non-biblical, uh, non-canonical books are not inspired. We don't read them the way we read the Word of God. Uh, but it's funny, you're almost afraid to mention them because people, uh, you can watch people recoil when you mention even the book of Enoch. It's like, you're not going to start teaching that that should be in the Bible, are you? Because if you are, I've got three churches I'm going to go to tomorrow, you know. I mean, it's serious. I mean, you start talking about, I just read the book of Gad the seer. What? Well, is he some kind of, you know, crazy, uh, you know, mystic? I, well, no, he's referenced in the Bible. No, he isn't. I mean, it's, it's really scary to talk about this stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I was thinking this tonight. There are whole churches and whole denominations that on a Sunday morning will study their creeds instead of the word of God. Now, their creeds are based on the Word of God, right? Uh, and that's all okay. And I'm not totally against it. I don't think they're heretics or anything. But I'm not going to go to a church that studies its own creeds. Because I want to study the source material. I mean, we have the source material. The Word of God says, how about we just read it where, you know, where it is? And so, so church tradition is an interesting thing. So it's okay to study your creeds and not the Word of God. But if you want to mention a non-canonical book, then you're, in, you know, you're probably a heretic. And so just keep all that in mind. While scanning YouTube, my research assistant, Pam, uh, came across an early church historian's reference to the birth of Jesus. It's super cool. It's a little bit long, but I think you'll like it. Uh, and, and so this is uh, Julius Africanus, a Christian historian who lived and wrote from A.D. 160 to about 240 when he died. He records what he calls the Magi's own account of the star of Bethlehem <coughs> and Christ's birth. And you can find this in the Anti-Nicene Fathers, Volume 6, under Africanus Extent Writings. Uh, 
it's free on, to download on eSword. How many of you have eSword on your computer or tablet? I'm embarrassed because I haven't told you enough. Is eSword still free? I think it's still free. No, it's not. How much is it? You know? Somebody look it up and shout it out later. But anyway, eSword, these are public domain. Uh, this is the, uh, don't pay for the anti-Nicene fathers. You can get them in PDF and stuff. I know you're going to rush out and want to read all of this. Uh, but uh, anyway, this is, this is real. It comes from the, you know, second century A.D., and here's his record. He says, this is the Magi talking. He says, we came to that place to which we were sent and saw the mother and the child, the star indicating to us the royal babe. And we said to the mother, what art thou named, O renowned mother? And she says, Mary, masters. And we said to her, once art thou sprung? And she replies, from this district of the Bethlehemites. Uh, then said we, hast thou not had a husband? And she answers, I was only betrothed with a view to the marriage covenant, my thoughts being far removed from this. For I had no mind to come to this, and while I was giving very little concern to it, when a certain Sabbath dawned and straight away at the rising of the sun, an angel appeared to me, bringing me suddenly the glad tidings of a son. And in trouble I cried out, be it not so to me, Lord, for I have not a husband. And he persuaded me to believe that by the will of God I should have this son." Then said we to her, Mother, Mother, all gods of the Persians have called thee blessed. Uh, Thy glory is great, for thou art exalted above all women of renown, and thou art shown to be more queenly than all queens. The uh, the child, moreover, was seated on the ground, being, as she said, in his second year, and having in the part the likeness of his mother. By the way, I like that because um, we've taught for years Jesus was not an infant when they visited him. He was probably at least two years old. And so I'm not saying this is a completely accurate account, but it's an account, and it's not inaccurate in some of these details and just gives you kind of, some of you really like The Chosen, right? That drama that's on with, with, uh, and stuff. And you think, wow, this is great. It gives background and color. Well, this is a first century guy who can give you some background and culture. I mean, he was, you know, connected to it in some sense. And so it says here, Uh, having in part the likeness of his mother, and she had long hands and a body somewhat delicate, and her color was like that of of ripe wheat, and she was of a round face and had her hair bound up. And as we had, this is great, we had along with us a servant skilled in painting from the life. We brought with us to our country a likeness of them both, and it was placed by our hand in the sacred temple with this inscription on it, to Jove, the son, the mighty God, the king of Jesus, the power of Persia dedicated this. A little mixture of cultures there that you don't want to get too much into. But you think it's cool. These guys, the Magi, they're suggesting that they brought a, 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 an artist with them who would paint uh, the, the king of the Jews when they found him. Taking the child up, each of us in turn, and bearing him in our arms, we saluted him and worshipped him, presented him gold and myrrh and frankincense, Addressing him thus, we gift thee with thine own, Jesus, ruler of heaven, wert things unordered be ordered, wert things not at hand. In no way, in no other way could things heavenly be brought into conjunction with things earthly, but by thy descent, such service cannot be discharged. If only the master is sent us as when the master himself is present, neither can so much be achieved when the king sends out only his satraps to war as when the king is there himself. 
It becomes the wisdom of thy system that thou shouldst deal in this manner with men. And the child leaped and laughed at our caresses and words. And when he had bidden the mother farewell, we had bidden the mother farewell. Then uh, she had shown us honor, and we had testified to her the reverence which becomes us, and came again to the place in which we lodged. And at eventide there appeared to us one of terrible and fearful countenance, saying, Get out quickly, lest ye be taken in a snare. And we in terror said, And who is he, O divine leader, that plotteth against so august an an embassage? And he replied, Herod, but get you up straightway and depart in safety and peace. And we made speed to depart thence in all earnestness. We reported in Jerusalem that all we had seen. Behold then the great things that we have told you regarding Christ. We saw Christ, our Savior, who is made known to us as both God and man. To him be the glory and the power unto the ages of the ages. Amen. I don't know why I think that's so cool, right? Because they did visit, you know, and, and how would you see that scene? I mean, when you visit uh, Jesus and he's two years old, you know what it's like to see a two-year-old, right? It's, hey, look at you, how big you are. You know, I don't know, you do all that stuff. We brought you some toys, frankincense and myrrh, and you're like, no animals, you know, and stuff. But, uh, I mean, there was, they played with Jesus, right? I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not saying this is accurate. If you're mad at me, we'll study a church creed. How's that? Let's go. <laughs> But uh, it, it's cool to think about that, uh, and, and I'll, Irenaeus, again, uh, because I'm reading a lot of him, uh, he's in book three of his writings, chapter 18, section one, he talks about the importance of Christ's birth from a virgin. Uh, he says, the Virgin Mary, being obedient to the word, received from an angel the glad tidings that she would bear God. In another reference, he says, for the word of God who is God from the beginning, is in fact the divine substance of the Father, and therefore the Word became flesh, and the Son of God became the Son of Man. Uh, and then I've got a bunch of other references here to uh, first century guys and uh, up until the fourth century. But, uh, you know, there's a, I want to suggest to you that there's a lot of stuff out there that kind of, you know, fills in the blanks a little bit, or maybe is just interesting, uh, and uh, you never hear about it. And, and we want to just introduce that a little bit more and more just to be well-rounded. You want to be able to say, hey, there's a lot of references to books, like you would imagine, you know, to, because the, the, these are living documents. And Paul, for example, he's trying to reach people in their own place. He talks about the Cretans and the certain philosophers and stuff like that. And so it's not, uh, it's not something to be sought after as if it's inspired. It's not. But uh, it, is, uh, it is good. And there's a lot of stuff in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, and some of those writings that helps you to, uh, like there are commentaries that they found among those on Scripture uh, that kind of fill in the blanks and stuff. And so a lot, there's a lot of stuff we just don't know, uh, you know, because we're, we're um, well, there's just a lot of stuff to know. I want to stop with this. Um, Jerome, best known for his translation of the Bible into Latin, popularly known as the Vulgate, he wrote, he found no room in the Holy of Holies that shone with gold, precious stones, pure silk and silver. He is not born in the midst of gold and riches, but in the midst of dung, in a stable where our sins were filthier than dung. He is born on a dung hill in order to lift up those who came from it. From the dung hill, he lifts up the poor. He called his nativity sermon on the nativity of our Lord. I would call it Dung, da dung, dung. 
but what an image, right? I mean, this is just like reading a commentary. I mean, it's like reading John MacArthur, only better, because this is an early century guy who, you know, was closer to the church fathers, and, and he concludes that our life is dung, da dung, dung, without Jesus. Amen? 